whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. So if you're familiar with the hand-finger convention from philosophy discussion periods, where a hand means a new line of questioning and a finger is a follow-up, I am allowed to use my finger. And the second ground rule is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Okay, my name is Richard Holton. uh, I'm a philosopher at Cambridge. I teach at Cambridge at the moment, having taught at very many different universities around the world before that. And I work, I suppose, on a huge range of different things. I quite like teaching at Cambridge because I teach undergraduates all sorts of different things, and that suits me quite well. But I work still a little bit in philosophy of language, which is what I started out doing. But I work a lot these days with psychologists and neuroscientists and increasingly with medics. So I do a lot of the work on issues around free will and the will and addiction and things like that, which bridges philosophical topics with more applied scientific topics. Well, thanks, Richard. It's great to have you here. As you know, my inspiration for the podcast is Iris Murdoch. And you hear her at the beginning of every episode telling us that philosophy is not self-expression. But she also wrote, uh, this is a quote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So would you say your temperament influences your philosophical work? And if so, how? Yes, I mean, I suppose it's bound to influence your work, even in ways you don't really notice. I'm not sure I quite agree that it's to explore one's temperament, but it does influence what one does, I suppose. And how does it with me? I, th- I think I'm not a grand theory builder. I'm, for me, the interesting point in a philosophical inquiry is when something you didn't understand suddenly seems to open out and you can make some distinctions and draw some lines and suddenly a mess turns into an environment you can start to feel your way around. So I like doing that sort of thing. Some people think of analytic philosophy as sort of connected to science. So you think of philosophy as the end of the sciences and continental philosophy as connected to literature. So you think of philosophy at the end of literature or other humanities disciplines. And I suppose I think of philosophy as sort of actually between those two. I like reading novels and poetry and I like reading a lot of history and things like that. But I also do read a lot of science because of the people I tend to work with. So I'm always very keen to be aware of the role of philosophy between those different disciplines rather than thinking of it as a sort of self-standing discipline. Can you think of ways in which reading novels or history or your sort of broader humanistic interests influence or affect your philosophy? I mean, there are obvious ways that you just get examples and new ways of thinking. I I think it also, it it just makes you stand back a little bit from just thinking of every question as a sort of empirical question that can be tackled by the methods of science. And I think it's there's a little bit of a tendency in some philosophy to, to very much see philosophy as continuous with science. We're just asking the more 
theoretical questions, and then maybe asking the sort of value questions where those two are structured in a rather similar way. And I think if when you read a lot of literature and whatever, you realize that no, that doesn't quite capture it, that there are ways of thinking about things, there are approaches to things that can you see very much changing between different novelists. And you also see that changing between different historical philosophers. And it's good to have a sense of that, I think, from time to time. It's interesting to juxtapose that with your description of your work or the turn your work has taken towards the intersection of philosophy of mind and action with empirical psychology and neuroscience. I mean, do you feel a tension there or a kind of pressure that you have to resist towards becoming sort of scare quotes scientistic in your approach or orientation? Yeah, not not really. I'm, maybe I'm just not self-reflective enough to, to, to be aware of what should be an issue. No, it feels much more continuous to me than that. So, for instance, the, the stuff I've been doing on addiction, I'm interested in these ideas of what's been called recently self-signaling, so that you do something in order to provide information to yourself about yourself, and that's part of your reason for doing it. And that does have a very formal way it's worked out often in a lot of the scientific literature. But I think it's also a theme which you see throughout 20th century literature. Um, And I think an an awareness of those two actually can help you keep at bay an over-reductionist approach to many of these things. What's an example of that, of of self-signaling? Of self-signaling? Well, I mean, it it happens in lots of trivial cases. So, So... for instance, someone might invite you to go skiing with them and you don't know whether you like skiing. So you, you just do a little bit of skiing to find out whether you like it. So you're finding out about yourself. I see. But the, the issues I've been more interested in are, are, are things that come up historically with Weber worrying about religion and the rise of capitalism, worrying about why people are still motivated to do the good if they believe that they're predetermined either for heaven or hell. And his answer there is that they do the good in order to show themselves that they are destined for heaven. Now, that's, there seems something's a little bit odd about that sort of motivation. If you actually think you are already destined, why would you do this just to get the information? So there are, it ties in with various issues in decision theory there. Yeah. But it also ties in in the addiction case very much, I think, that people very often take their own cravings, their own desire for something, as indicative of some feature of their deep self that they are an addict or something like that. I mean, one thing very striking is to compare the typical therapies that are there for alcoholism. So Alcoholics Anonymous is, is the prime one, which says, you know, if once an addict, you're always an addict and you can never escape being an addict. That's part of your deep personality. Contrast that with the standard smoking therapies, which tend to say, look, you're not really a smoker. You just happen to be smoking. But deep down, you're you're not a smoker. You want to get clear of this. It's an alien thing. Um, So two completely different messages from things which, you know, chemically look to be fairly similar addictive substances. And yet they seem to have rather similar success rates. So I think really what's going on is that people need to have a story. They need to have some kind of narrative. And it doesn't matter too much what the narrative is, but they take evidence of different things as, in effect, self-signaling that. So they take evidence of their own craving in the alcoholic case of evidence that they are an alcoholic. Whereas in the smoking case, they take other evidences, evidence that they're not really a smoker. And interestingly, both of them can help in, in giving up. 
in that you can you give up because you think this isn't really anything to do with you. So it's, it gives me power to give it up because I'm not really in its grip. And then in the alcohol case, you give it up because you think, God, I am in its grip. The only way I can escape is to give it up. That's really interesting. I'm going to ask you a question about, I suppose, how you got into philosophy, and maybe this will connect with your orientation to it and the ways in which you do it. But this is question two, which is, who was your most inspiring teacher? So how I got into it and who my most inspiring teacher are are slightly different. Can I answer both of those, or am I only allowed? You can say, but yeah, sure. Five questions, but it can be six answers. Is that that? <laughs> That's allowed. Yes, That's allowed. exactly. Okay, just getting clear. So I mean, I got interested because my mother was doing a teacher training course at the University of Reading, and they told her to watch Brian McGee's Men of Ideas. Oh wow! Yeah. So I would have been, you know, fifteen, sixteen. So every Sunday we used to watch Men of Ideas, um, which I found absolutely transformative. So actually, Iris Murdoch, of course, one of the people who was interviewed on that. No, me too. I, I first encountered her as a, as one of the men of ideas. That's right. Yeah, yeah. She was, she was. I think the only female man of ideas on that. I believe so. On that program, yes, and the, and the only novelist. And uh, she, she was very keen on how much better the uh, the Russian novelists were than she was, which led me not to read any Murdoch novels for many years because I thought, you know, why, why waste your time when she's clearly told me I should be reading Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and not messing around with Murdoch. And then, so then I asked my, my grandmother for uh, for the transcripts for Christmas, and they had reading lists at the back. So, you know, and then off you go. There was there was lots of stuff there. So to some extent, I suppose I should thank Brian McGee yeah. um, for for organising all that. But then the, I I think probably the, the the philosopher who had the most influence certainly when I was a student was was John McDowell, who was my tutor at Oxford, which was a, a very remarkable thing as your as a what was I, 1920, an hour a week, one-on-one with, with John McDowell. It, it, it's a mixed blessing when you've got someone who's as powerful and enigmatic as McDowell is. I, I became a complete devotee, so I would try and read what he'd written on the topic, and I would write an essay that was pure McDowell, and then he would slowly take it to pieces until I couldn't say I couldn't work out what one should in fact be saying in order to defend the McDowellian position. And then you'd get this sort of secret doctrine, which um, wasn't really in any of the papers, but you know, took it took it further and took it into the areas where things were getting quite difficult and quite heady. But I got this marvellous, I mean, it took me a little bit of time afterwards to sort of stop just being McDowell disciple, which I think is not a very good thing to be a disciple of anybody. But what I got from him that, that was so marvellous was this sense that he was sort of wrestling with issues that he really wasn't clear on, and he was doing his best. So when people complain about him being obscure, you know, he, he isn't the easiest person to read, but much of that is because he's he acknowledges he's not on top of everything he's thinking about, and he's working to try and get clear on things. And that as a sort of apprenticeship, I think, was a, was a wonderful philosophical apprenticeship. Well, maybe this will connect with the next question. Maybe not. I'm curious about this, because question three is whether there's a trait you wish you had more of as a philosopher. Yeah, I think I could be more single-minded. So I, I do like working on lots of different things, and I like thinking about things from different positions and in different ways. And, you know, that may be a good way to get an interesting take on it for yourself, but it's probably not always the best way to 
make progress for other people. I mean, sometimes you make more progress for other people if you just doggedly follow a line and keep at it. So I, I'm, you know, I, I think I might be a more effective philosopher if I if I were more single-minded and less uh, tempted and, and seduced by different ways of thinking about things. I also wish I could write better. I I, uh, I spend ages writing. I, I have a sense in my head of what something will sound like, and I write it, and it doesn't look anything like it sounded like in my head. And it is something I care about, that it sounds all right. So then I rewrite it, and then I rewrite it, and then I rewrite it. So it takes me forever to get anything written. And so I do sometimes envy colleagues. I mean, not just to be able to produce quickly, but to be able to produce quickly and well, to be able to write stuff that looks good when it comes out first time around. Are there philosophers who you think of as sort of models for philosophical prose, or that you try to, well, these aren't necessarily the same thing, but you try to emulate or at least admire? There aren't people I try to emulate. Uh, There are plenty of people I admire. So I think Lewis is a wonderful example of someone who manages to accommodate the needs of his readers. So you can read the first few pages of a Lewis article and you know basically what he's saying without him having talked down to you and without it having lost the detail that it will need later on. So he's certainly someone I sort of hold up to students as as someone who's incredibly good at doing that. Other people who do I just enjoy? I mean, you know, I'm afraid I don't have anything particularly novel to say. So J.L. Austin, yeah. I, I, I never fail to enjoy rereading a, an Austin essay, however many times I've I've read it. It's just it's just always a joy. Murdoch mixture, some things I like, some things I don't. Um, who else do I just kind of enjoy? Kripke, I always enjoy reading. And that's interesting because, of course, he doesn't typically write. Most of these things are dictated. But I do think that's a remarkable ability, actually, to be able to speak in the way that Kripke does, Yeah, such that it can be written down and it's still readable. So I had a job once with uh, Scott Soames and Michaelis Michael of transcribing a Kripke, Kripke talk. And we, th- we all thought we'd understood the whole thing. And then we started transcribing it. And we realized there were all these little sort of sub-arguments which didn't seem to make any sense at all. We hadn't even heard them when we were listening to the talk. And then as we probed them, they would just sort of open out. And you'd realize there was another little argument that was packed into the, packed into the talk. So the, the Lloyd Humstone sometimes talks about the ideas per page quotient of a good article. And the, the ideas per page of, of or ideas per minute of a, of a of a Kripke talk, certainly at that point, was really quite quite phenomenal. I thought. Yeah, that reminds me of the structure on the page of reading Kripke, where sometimes the footnotes will spiral over the next two pages, probably filling out one of those hints in the talk yeah. that you were you're yes, picking exactly. up on. Yeah, no, ex- ex- exactly. That, that, that's exactly what happens there. I think there's a there's a sort of density to argument, which is. Uh, which is very interesting, yeah. So we've been mostly talking about, I think, positive aspects of your life as a philosopher. So I'm going to ask you question four. What is your worst moment as a philosopher? I did think about this bit before. I mean, it's actually quite hard to think of things that are terrible. I think we are very lucky in philosophy. Well, at least I've been lucky. I mean, maybe this just, it's been helpful to me being the, race, gender, etc., that I am, and having had the various privileged positions I've had. But I don't think things have been 
there have been that many experiences which I think back on as a philosopher as being terrible. I mean, there are, th- there are things where I felt I've really learned from something we've done, and I realize how, how badly we've done something. So, so one example of that, uh, when I was at Monash, we used as a department to raise money for the department speaker series and all, you know, paying for the photocopy and things like that by giving medical ethics classes to the medics. Michael Smith used to organize it. There's a whole big bunch of us went along. So Michael Smith, Peter Singer, uh, Ray Langt, my wife and me, and uh, Julian Savalescu was there. A lot of people were there. Lots of good things came out of it. So for instance, Ray and I had a, were converted to vegetarianism by, uh, by one of the lectures that was given there. We, we just wrote a little piece on, on the argument that converted us to that. But at the end of it, we had a session, I think it was just an informal session, and I was talking to one of the doctors there about whether this had been a useful course and whether the medical students had really got anything out of it. And she said that, you know, well, she kind of enjoyed it, but there was nothing that we had done which actually spoke to her everyday work as a doctor. So, you know, we talked about grand end-of-life things. We talked about the standard sorts of things that you get on many medical ethics textbooks and so on. And she said, well, you know, it's all very well, but actually those things just, they come up very, very rarely. But there are all these other issues that do come up, and she talked about some of them. And um, it really made me realise how how bad we can be as philosophers sort of coming in boots first thinking we've got the solutions to things rather than keeping quiet for a long time and listening to what happens to what's happening and then starting to come to things when you've really understood what's going on rather than just sort of coming in with your with your with your prior theories and i think that's changed me a lot in the way that i do interdisciplinary work so there's a lot of interdisciplinary work these days. And sometimes I think it doesn't work terribly well when the philosophers just come in and say, this is what they think. The times it works well, I think you've really got to keep quiet for a long time until you understand how things are working. So you were telling me earlier on, before we officially started recording, that you've been consulting recently with the NHS or, or as part of a team with the NHS about the current pandemic situation, have the lessons from that earlier interaction played a role in doing that? Yeah, hugely. So it's very easy just to come into these things and say, well, this is, you know, if you take consequentialist views, what you should say, and if you're more deontological, you say this, whatever. And I, I think nine times out of 10, that's that's actually not a useful thing to say. I, I think the main role you've got as a philosopher is 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 to keep quiet for much of the discussion and do the things that philosophers are, are trained to do, which is to, to see a discussion which is, you know, it's a, look, people have got really interesting points, but often the points are not quite answering each other. They're not quite, haven't quite got a grip on what the key issues are. And insofar as you're useful on these sorts of things, I think it's not that you bring sort of ethics expertise it's that you bring that kind of clarification which you're you're trained to to look for as a philosopher to a discussion which otherwise can be sort of a bit too wide ranging but it's been it's been very interesting it's as you say i've been on this it's just a, a sort of small 
local NHS, National Health Service Committee, which has been done to look at ethical issues which are coming up from the pandemic. And it started, of course, with everybody worrying about who would be put on the ventilator and these sort of, you know, headline style ethical dilemmas. And it's actually gone to lots more, very much more mundane questions, which to some extent are there in a health service in general, but are in many ways you know, issues around trust, which is a, is a topic I, I've been working on with some medics anyway, issues around who takes responsibility for what, issues around how you deal with uncertainty, things like that, which are philosophically very, very interesting issues, but are not you know, things which are easily translated into terms of, well, this is what a consequentialist would say, and so on and so so forth. So I think you end up responding to them not with a set theory, but rather by sort of probing these issues and asking asking questions a lot of, of, of the medics who are there, trying to see quite how they're seeing things and where things are going wrong and where things might be improved. Well, at this point, I think I'm going to move us along to our final question. So it's another Murdoch question. Right. The, uh, the quote is, it's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. What is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Yeah, right. I mean, it may be a significant question to ask. I'm not, I'm not sure it's something you're always going to get a significant answer to. So there, 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 are, there, are, some quest- there are some philosophers where you think, you know, this would obviously be the right question to ask you might well imagine asking that of maybe of Murdoch herself yeah maybe of Wittgenstein but I'm not sure I could imagine sort of asking it of Hume you know what, what's Hume centrally afraid of it's not not clear that would help I should have mentioned Hume actually as a as an example of a writer I always enjoy yeah reading yeah so I I think it does point to a certain sort of philosopher and I'm afraid I'm probably not that sort of philosopher so I'm not sure that there's anything terribly helpful I can say about the things that I'm afraid of. So if you were to ask me at the moment, you know, well, obviously everyone's concerned about the pandemic. I'm much more concerned about climate change in the long run. I think that's a a much more pressing thing. And I just hope that some of the lessons we've been learning now about the need for group action, about the need to move away from market solutions, about the effects of externalities and so on, will stand us in good stead when we have to start thinking again about climate issues, which we should never have stopped thinking about. But I'm not sure I've got anything that's more personal or interesting to say amongst my set of fears. Again, I've probably just been very lucky, but I don't think of fear as a dominant motivation in in most of the things I do. You know, mid-range worry, yes. Yeah. Out in that fear of the kind of dramatic kind, which Murdoch, I think, is is alluding to there, probably not. Well, yeah, that's totally fine. I mean, I actually, part of what I was interested in doing with this question, I think I said this to someone in one of the earlier podcasts, was testing whether, in fact, it was a significant question to ask about any philosopher. Uh, I wasn't entirely sure that it was, and I was interested to see whether people split between those who say, I'm glad you asked me that. I've been <laughs> right. wanting to get this off, to, off my chest yeah. for yes, so indeed. long. And indeed. others who yeah. are bemused by the question. Yes. So, yes, thank you for providing data. It might be a nice diagnostic question. I think, I think that may well be right. And quite often, sort of building something into the presupposition is a good way of <clears throat> making that diagnosis really hit home. Because 
if you give someone something with it already there in the presupposition, you've you've really got to think it doesn't fit before you before you question it. It's true. The dice are loaded somewhat. Yes. Yeah, yeah. the dice are loaded. Yeah. So you, so you know, for most other questions, you can kind of cobble together an answer. But I do find I uh, there's a bit of a sticking point on that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Richard, so much for appearing on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. That was Richard Holton. He's professor of philosophy at the University of Cambridge and the author of many essays and a book called Willing, Wanting, Waiting. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.